you have your Bibles with you, open them to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Uh, I want to ask you this before we get going in this message today. I was just curious, among those of you who were here last Sunday, think about whether you were here last Sunday. How many of you, at least one time since last Sunday, stood in front of a mirror and stuck your tongue out and looked at yourself in the mirror? Raise your hand. How many of you? That's about a third of the folks who really did. The rest of you are lying, and today the sermon is about lying in the house of God. James is a pastor of the church at Jerusalem. The year is somewhere around 50 to 53 A.D. They are experiencing in the land that is now Israel and Palestine an economic crisis. Now, they're experiencing one now, but they were experiencing one in the year 51. James is the pastor. Some people have lost their jobs. Some people haven't lost their jobs, but their salary has been decreased Others are wondering if they're going to have a job next week. A lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck and then around Jerusalem. Some people have had to move outside the area to get a good job. And so he's writing to them about how faith works in an economic crisis. Imagine that. If anybody ever wanted to know how a 2,000-year-old book inspired by an everlasting God, could ever speak to the 21st century person, there you have it. Because James does. He's not the only writer in the New Testament or the Old that speaks to our, our culture today, but certainly he does. He's already said a number of things to us. First of all, he said, in your economic crisis, expand your vision to see that God more often than not, does things in a crisis that he doesn't do any other way or at any other time. Secondly, in chapter 1, he said, as you're in your crisis, don't waste your time and your energy by finding out who's to blame, assigning blame to another person or especially, in James' words, to God. Then he ends chapter 1 by saying, spend your time in the crisis listening to God. Because God whispers during our good times, but he shouts to us in our crises. And the most important things he ever tells us, he will tell us in the midst of a crisis. And so when life seems to be falling apart, get ready. God has something incredibly important to say to you. In chapter 2, He talks about the kind of faith that will weather the crisis. It is a faith that embraces everybody else as equals and not inferiors. It is a faith that gets up and does something, doesn't just sit there waiting for somebody to do for you. It is a faith that exceeds that of the devil who believes in Jesus and knows that Jesus is God and believes that Jesus rose from the dead. You've got to go further than that. And it is a faith that doesn't rely on your past. Some of you are bogged down in mistakes you've made, failures you've committed. And God is a God who has the uncanny ability to forget those things everlastingly. I don't know how he does it, but I know that he does. And then last week, James said, when you're in the crisis, be careful how you use that tongue of yours. 
Be careful what you say. Now in chapter 3, beginning with verse 13, he's going to contrast, make a contrast between uh, two types of wisdom. And one of, those wisdom, one of those types of wisdom is the kind we need in a time of crisis. James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it and deny the truth. For such, quote, wisdom, unquote, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you find envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we've read your word. Your word is powerful right by itself. Lord, I pray that you would help us to get out our spiritual shovels and dig into this passage, be able to pull out some things that you're saying not only to folks back in the year 50, 51, 52, but also some things that you're saying to those of us in 2009. We're in a crisis as they were. Lord, I, I know that you're speaking to us some very important things as you did to them. I pray you'd help us to hear them. Lord, I pray that by the time we leave here today, we would be convinced of the kind of wisdom we need to weather the crisis. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't have to tell you that wisdom has been selling at a premium, not just recently, but throughout all of history, both the scripture writers and philosophers who wrote, lifted up the significance of wisdom in daily life. Cicero in 52 BC said this, he says, wisdom is the best gift of the gods. It is the mother of all good things, the best, and that which generates all of the best. In Proverbs chapter 4, Verse 7, the writer of Proverbs says, Acquire wisdom, and with all of your acquiring, get understanding. I know that you remember back in 1 Kings chapter 3, the story of Solomon. Solomon was uh, one of the children of David, one of the sons of David, King David, the second king of Israel. And when David died, he, he anointed his son Solomon to be his successor as king. And you will recall that that uh, Solomon was a man who had great riches and great honor and great authority and great rank and, and everything that could be great was showered upon Solomon. One night he was sleeping. And in his sleep, God came to Solomon in a dream. And here's what he said to him. He said, Solomon, ask me what you want me to give you. Whatever it is, I'll give it to you. Now let me ask you, 
How many of us would love for God to come to us in a dream and ask us something like that? Boy, I'd like that, I think. I'm not really sure what I'd answer, but I'd like that. Jimmy, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Well, Solomon, although he was a young man, he had, he had some common sense and some smarts and some understanding and some wisdom beyond his years. And so he said to the Lord, he said, Look, Lord, you have, you've shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father. You have reserved him with great loving kindness, Solomon said. You've given him a son to sit on the throne as it is this day. You have made your servant king in place of my father, David. But I'm but a child, he said. I do not know how to go out or come in. I'll tell you, that's humility right there. I don't know how to go out and come in. I'm young and experienced, inexperienced, and your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, your people, a great people who cannot be numbered. What is Solomon saying? He says, look, Lord, you've already given me all the rank and all the, all the, all the pomp and circumstance and, and, and all the authority that anybody could ever hope for. I have at my beck and call any possession that anybody would ever, ever want or need. And he says, you've made me king in place of my father. And I'll tell you, Lord, I don't know enough to go out and in by myself. I can't get out of a wet paper bag by myself. And so God... What do I want that you'll give me anything? Give me an understanding heart that I might be able to understand your will for these people, that I might be able to discern and understand good from evil, right from wrong, so that when these people come to me and they say, King Solomon, we need some advice, I can give them something with calories in it that they can stick their teeth into. It won't just be styrofoam. And the Bible says... That God was pleased with this request. Now, there are two things there that I, I, I would love to have happen to me. One is for God to say, ask me whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And the other is, for whatever my answer is, that God would be able to say, I am so pleased with that answer. God wants to glory in the answers of his children. But the thing that made God smile upon Solomon so widely was that Solomon had asked for wisdom. He could have had anything, but he asked for wisdom. Now, that doesn't mean that Solomon always exercised the wisdom God gave him. He didn't. But a lot of the time he did. He was known throughout all the known world as a person of wisdom. People came from the, from the, the farthest reaches of civilization at that time to come and witness and experience the wisdom of Solomon. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 29, there's a little different scenario. Israel has disobeyed God. And the Bible says in Deuteronomy 32, 29, that God was crying out over the disobedience of Israel. And here's what he says. He says, oh, that they were wise. Oh, that they had spiritual wisdom. God wants us to be people of wisdom. Job, probably the oldest book in terms of when it was written of any book in the entire Bible. Job was in the midst of uh, an inexplicable series of tragedies. He, he, was, he was sick and he was broke out. His, his marriage relationship was decaying. But worse than that, he'd lost all ten of his children in one single windstorm. 
He lost most of his employees. He lost all of his flocks. Here was a man who had gone from, from the pinnacle of success to the very bottom of the barrel of tragedy. And Job says in chapter 28, he says, where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth, he says. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, Job says, nor can its price be weighed in silver, Job continues. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. He says, where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living being, concealed from even the birds of the air. But God understands the way to it. Did you hear that? God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where wisdom dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters and when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and he appraised it, sized it up, confirmed it and tested it. And he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. I could go on. There are so, so many references in the Old and New Testaments to, this, this, uh, to the importance of this concept of wisdom. But I think what I've already given you is enough to say that the Scriptures, as well as history, places a premium upon wisdom. And it's a premium that is so high that we cannot afford to ignore what God says in His Word about this thing called wisdom. And so James poses this question to his listeners and, and to us this morning. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? You see, James is speaking here to people who, in their minds, whether they say it or not, they claim to be wise. They claim to be wise at least on certain things, if not everything. You always find folks who are wise about everything, but most people are wise about a few things, or they think they are, or we think we are. And so James begins to describe the kind of wisdom that's needed to weather a crisis. What kind of wisdom will help us through a crisis such as the one in which we find ourselves, or such as whatever the crisis is, maybe it's not economic, that you find yourself experiencing right now? Four truths about wisdom that I want to convey to you. Number one, wisdom is seeking God's will for how to live life. It is seeking God's wisdom for how to live life. We get in a crisis and we start trying to think about life from our own understanding and from our own perspective. And sometimes that will do us okay. Sometimes we'll get by with that. But remember that the Bible tells us not to trust on our own heart. He says, trust in the Lord with all your own heart and do not lean upon your own understanding. When we lean upon the Lord, when we seek His wisdom, the Bible says that He will redirect our thoughts. He will direct our path. He will lay out the path before us, the path that we need to go. Now, the problem comes when... What, God, what we hear God saying for us to do is different from what we 
want to do. And we start arguing with God. Have you ever done that? I've done that before. I've argued with God. I said, God, that just doesn't look like the right way to go. That doesn't look like the way that, that I need to go in my life. And, and here I am down here, and you're way up there. I've got a pretty close view of what's going on, don't you think? Let me give you some advice about how I ought to live my life. And God just laughs and laughs. I'm telling you, God, there must be several times in every day when God gets a, a, a gut-bursting chuckle over our plans. Wisdom is not doing things your way. Wisdom is not going along according to your understanding. Wisdom is going along according to what God's understanding of your life and your future is, what God's will for your life is. Wisdom is seeking God's will and then applying that to your life regardless of whether you disagree with what God says. Number two, and this is specifically in the verses I shared with you from James, wisdom is revealed in a person's behavior. James says, hey, who among you is wise and understanding? Let me tell you how to show it. Let me tell you how I can tell, James says, whether or not you really possess the kind of wisdom that I'm saying we need. He says, I'll see it in your life. You will see it in my life. He says, in the opening verses of the passage. He says, who among you is wise? Let him show it by the deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. This is the kind of wisdom we need. And it comes, it shows in our life. Listen, it doesn't matter how wise a person may think he or she is. People won't have to just hear it from them verbally. They'll be able to see it in her Life in his life. Wisdom is revealed in person's behavior. Let me just stop right here and ask you and me this question. Think about your most recent behavior. Does it reflect the wisdom of God? Does it reflect long time spent seeking out, pursuing, searching desperately, diligently God's will for your life? Truth number three, there is a big difference between worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom. There's a big difference between worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom. And the fact that James has to point out the difference leads me to believe that we are too often fooled into thinking that worldly wisdom is God's wisdom. I think the Bible points that out in, uh, in 1 John. John said this, he says, test the spirits to see which one is from God. And, and you know, I've read that before and I thought, wow, that means that there are some evil spirits, there are some evil influences in our world that when I feel them and when I'm influenced by them, they feel like and they look like and they lead me to think that they are spirit of God. When in reality, they are they have nothing to do with, the, with God at all. And the same thing is true of wisdom. There's this wisdom that comes from God, and there's this wisdom that comes from the world, and quite often we, we get the two mixed up, and we think that our way is God's way. 
We think that our understanding is really God's understanding. And we think that the way we want to go is the way God really wants us to go. We, we convince ourselves so much. It's amazing how much of what I want to do and, and that I do in my life, I convince myself that it is of God when it has nothing to do with him whatsoever. Look at the direction of your life. Look at the decisions you've made of late. Do they reflect the true wisdom of God? And James outlines in, in detail, not exhaustive detail, but detail nonetheless, the difference between worldly wisdom and God's wisdom. Worldly wisdom, he said, is full of envy. Do you envy anybody? Do you envy somebody else's position? He says selfish ambition. Now, I, I think there's nothing wrong with having a certain kind of ambition, but there is a godly ambition and there's a selfish ambition. You say, well, I, I want a position higher than what I have right now, or I want to be at a better place in my life somewhere down the road than I am right now. That's all good and well, but, but examine your motivation for doing so. Are, do you want to be in a better position to glorify God, or do you want to be in a better position because you'll be in front of people more? Or you'll be in a spotlight more? Or you can be able to brag to certain people about how much more money you're making. Or you can drive a, a better car. Or live in a better home. Or drive a more exp or, or wear a more expensive suit. What is your motivation? You see, if, if my ambition is to have a higher position so that people can look at me and perceive me in a better way than they do now, my friends, that is worldly wisdom. It's not God's wisdom. Now, if you want a higher position, you know, I, I'd love to see somebody take a higher position than what they are, and in that higher position, people see them less and see how many people are going to jump for it. By the way, have you ever thought about that, uh, that, that sometimes moving to a higher position gives you less pay? Hello? Worldly wisdom is focused solely on what happens here on earth. It's unspiritual. And it is, James says, is derived from the devil. Your plans, do they focus entirely on what is here on earth, your earthly life? Do they have any eternal impact? Do they have any impact that goes beyond the end of earthly existence? Or are all our plans just made to pad our pockets and our, our uh, egos and our personalities here on earth. James says God's wisdom is, first of all, pure. It's pure. It's not, uh, it's not deluded with all kinds of, of ulterior motives. It's pure. When people see you, they get what they see, and they see what they get. It's peace-loving. Everything that, that godly wisdom produces is peace-loving. It is considerate. It is submissive. Submissive means that you prefer. You, you give in sometimes to what someone else wants, even though it's not what you want, but you do it because you love them and because you want to glorify God. Listen, serving God is not always about winning. Quite often it's about losing in order to win. And sometimes it's just about losing. Let me tell you, the people who stood on the mountain of Golgotha that first Good Friday 
did not think, this is a win. But it was. But Jesus had to lose in order to win. It's submissive, it's full of mercy, and it's full of good fruit, and it's impartial, and it's sincere. I love the word sincere. It's kind of a word that I have grabbed onto, and I'm just kind of holding on to it, and it's dragging me all over the place. Not because I have attained it, but because I like it. I like it in other people. I, sometimes I replace sincere with a synonym, real. I like real people. I don't like fake people. I didn't say I don't love them. I, I just don't like them. And I know some of you are thinking, well, you know, preacher, it's kind of hard to distinguish between love and uh, loving somebody and not like, and, and you're right. I, I'll agree with that. It's, it's, a, it's, a, tough, it's a tough distinction, and, and I'll, I'll just be quite honest with you. I don't always get the distinction very well. But I'm just going to tell you, I love real people. I don't like fake people, even though I love them. I just like real people. I don't like syrupy, sappy People who walk around with rose-colored glasses all the time, they, 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 can, they can look at Calvin here and think, isn't that so cute? <laughs> I mean, really, come on. Godly wisdom is sincere. And then finally, James tells us that exercising God's wisdom results in a righteous harvest. That's his last verse there. Those who pursue peace, those who are peacemakers, who are exercising godly wisdom, they produce a righteous harvest. In other words, they, they look at the end, and I'm not encouraging us to have an end justifies the means type of philosophy, but I'm saying that when you exercise godly wisdom, the end result will be something that God smiles upon. It'll, it'll, be, what, it'll be the same thing that God said to Solomon. Oh, man, what you ask for pleases me. It pleases me, Solomon. Godly wisdom results in a righteous harvest. Not only will it result in a righteous harvest, that is something that God is pleased with, but it will also have eternal, eternal benefits. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I are Christians. We're people who profess to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're people who believe that he died on a cross for us and rose from the dead, don't we? And we believe that his word teaches us the, the principles that help us to live a godly life. But let me tell you this. Remember this. I know you remember it, but you and I need to be reminded of it. This life is not all there is. There will come a time, I don't know when it's coming, whether it's tomorrow or 10,000, 10 billion years, I don't know when it's coming, but I know this, there is coming a day when, when this earth as we know it is going to be absolutely not here. And there's going to be something brand spanking new. And the decisions we make in this life prepare us or ill prepare us for that next life. The decisions that we make now can have eternal ramifications, eternal benefits. James says, when you exercise godly wisdom, it produces a righteous harvest. That means that it'll please God now, and it's going to prepare somebody for then. We 
You and I live in a sea of opinions. We're experiencing a crisis in which there's a world of opinions and people are listening with their ears peeled for Ben Bernanke to say something or for Warren Buffett to say something. And then, of course, there's some of us who don't know the difference between Warren Buffett and Jimmy Buffett. And we don't have a clue. But we're listening. And while we're listening, it's good that we listen to those guys. Alan Greenspan, all those guys. We need to listen to them because, because a lot of things are influenced by the words. But, but by all means, listen, listen. Listen to God. Listen to what he's saying. Because his wisdom is the wisdom that is going to see us through the crisis. Listen, Alan Greenspan can make a prediction. Ben Bernanke can make a, 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 a prediction. Warren Buffett can tell us what he thinks is going to happen, although he lost more than most everybody else did last year combined. But let me tell you, when you're listening to God, you're listening to the guy who knows. He's not guessing. He knows. So here you have the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. And in a crisis, you and I will choose. We'll choose one or the other. Choose wisely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us the information we need. You've given us the power that is necessary. You've given us the personal relationship that will see us through the darkest crisis. But Lord, we have to decide which camp we're going to live in. Whether we're going to live by the world's wisdom or if we're going to live by your wisdom. Lord, sometimes we can't tell the difference. That's not your fault. But I pray that you would give us the discernment to be able to tell the difference and then help us to get in your camp. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.